and it's just fabulous. And Misty, awesome, you working them up, and you ought to see her on Wednesday nights just pounding them. You know, we come for Bible study, and I actually like to peek in just to see what a beating they're taking. I want to, uh, I don't know, I don't see Ardell, but Ardell is celebrating something like his 15th or 16th birthday tomorrow. He's still a teenager. Um, he is a leap year baby. And so, uh, uh, happy birthday to Ardell. If you get a chance to send him a note or see him, even today, write him a happy birthday, get it in the, uh, get it in the, in the office and we'll get it to him. Uh, that would be an awesome thing. He is just such an inspiration. So today, I want to... Uh, Take a look at the Lord's Prayer. Seems like a simple thing, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're a church person, you, you know that, right? It may have been one of the first prayers you ever learned. As a matter of fact, if you've gone to church. It's interesting to me because about 2.1 billion Christians, 2.1 billion Christians around the earth say that prayer. We can't agree on a lot of stuff, but we can agree on how Jesus taught us to pray, which is really, really cool if you think about it. Because right now, there's other churches right now talking about the same thing. It's the family. You'll find uh, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and a little bit of a version of it in Luke 11. But when we say this prayer, I believe it has a much deeper meaning than sometimes we give it. So today I'm going to spend a little bit of time going deep into this prayer. Now, here's what's interesting. I've been at Calvary for 11 years, so I'm a relative newcomer. But uh, um, in all the time I've been here, the majority, the vast majority of sermons have been what we call topical sermons. And what a topical sermon is is you take a topic, you take it from Scripture, and then you talk about that topic, and you other, use other Scriptures to support whatever that topic is you're talking about. Today I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to do an expository sermon. It's a different type of sermon. It's where you take a longer piece of Scripture, and you interpret Scripture using Scripture. So it really isn't necessarily us taking a topic and having an opinion about it and saying this is our interpretation. What we're saying is here's a longer piece of Scripture, and here's how Scripture defines that piece of Scripture. It's a little bit more academic, um, but I promise I will do my best to keep you awake. Uh, expository sermons can be those kind of sermons. Um, so I've worked really hard on this to have some lively moments just to wake you up as, as we go along. So let me get started here. When telling the disciples how to pray, why do you think Jesus used these words? He could have said, when you pray, pray like this. Jeff, we want you to pray for your mother. She's put up with a lot. He, Jesus could have said just about anything, yet he told us to pray like this. And we know that when Jesus tells us to do something, there's very much a reason for it. He just didn't come up with this and, and you know, as an afterthought. There, he, he was very purposeful. What I'm hoping happens today as we start explaining this is that you get a really deep understanding about our Father. Deeper than you've ever had. And you understand that this prayer is not really what you think it is. Because as I was doing this study, um, I was very convicted. Because I learned some things just in the study that I had never thought the Holy Spirit would show me. And so that's what we're going to do today is show you some things. And we'll get started talking about this right now. In Matthew, uh, 
In Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus is telling the disciples and the, the, the crowd how to, how to live, some things about it. And he gets to uh, Matthew 6, 5 through 8, where we're going to pick this up. And Jesus is going to tell us how to pray. And he says, when you pray, do not let, be like the hypocrites. So the first thing is he doesn't tell us how to pray. He tells us not, how not to pray. Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. If you do things for the praise of men, you don't get heavenly rewards. You get the praise of men. You get what you're asking for is what he's saying there. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then Jesus goes, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. This seems like a simple salutation. Our Father in heaven. But there's much, much more to it. So let's take a look at the first two words. Our and Father. Do you remember that Jesus was nearly stoned for calling God his Father? In John 10, 30-33 we read, And I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones against him. Jesus said to them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Yes, Jesus tells us to call his Father, our Father. He does that because we are made in God's image. We are God's children. He knew us before the beginning of time. He needed us in our mother's wombs. He knew our names before we were born. And like Jesus, we are heirs to the throne. Think for a moment about the Israel Jesus lived in. The Pharisees have, impl have implemented thousands of administrative rules that kind of administer the 613 laws you find in the Torah. The only, the only the high priest could go and meet with God. Remember once a year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and they used to tie a rope around him because he had to atone for the sins of Israel. And if it didn't work out, they'd pull him out. <laughs> Actually happened that way. But only once a year and only the high priest could meet with God. And Jesus indicates that the religious leaders did more to keep people from God than he did to bring them closer. Do you think at this time the people felt they could go to God and call him Daddy, Abba. You know, I still have Jewish friends um, who I write to, and when they write the word God, they'll write the G and the D, but they won't use the word O, the letter O. They'll just put an underline. Because the name of God is so reverent and so holy, they won't even write it, more or less say it. But for Jesus, he tells us that when we pray, Our Father, what we really are doing is what Jesus did throughout the Gospels, which is bring the true meaning of the Old Testament to light. The term Abba, or Daddy, was not first used by Jesus in the New Testament. Did you know that? It was first used in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 64, 8, the prophet writes, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. The word used in this verse for Father is the word Ab which is the root word of Abba, Daddy, the same word that Jesus used in Matthew. Further, the fatherhood of God can be found in the Old Testament when in Exodus, 
God tells us Israel as his son, even his firstborn. He loved him as his child. And thought of an, he's, this, this thought of an outraged father is found in the prophets. You find in Isaiah and Malachi. A father telling his children, stop doing what you're doing and come back to me. If you would just come back to me, I would be your God and you would be my people. It even become, and this is interesting, it even become common in Jewish literatures and in the private prayers. People would use Ab, Father. So Jesus and Matthew saying, Our Father. And the religious leaders being very upset by this. Who do you think you are calling God Daddy? Jesus is saying, You misunderstand. Have you not heard? In Isaiah, God is our Father, Abba. So think for a second about how uh, Scripture defines fatherhood. God tells us that he is the father to the fatherless. The entire third, entire third of, the book of, the word, of the book Proverbs is Solomon writing to his son, telling him fatherly wisdom. When Jesus tells us to pray to our father, what he is saying is God is your father to whom you must submit And he will treat you as a child the way scripture defines that relationship. Doing what is best for you. He'll do that in all circumstances. You know why? Because he loves you. He created you. He breathed life into you. He will always do what's best for you. He will raise you in his ways. He will love you no matter how badly you mess up. Those of you with kids know that your kids probably messed up sometimes. You didn't love them any less. You may not have been happy with them. That's a father. He will teach you and watch over you, and yes, he will discipline you to keep you in his will. You are his children. He is your father. So when you go and start the Lord's Prayer, our Father, what you're doing is praying in agreement that this is the relationship you're going to have with God. God is your father. You are his son and daughter. You were made in his image, and that as his child, you are responsible to him, and he is responsible for you. Let me repeat that. You are responsible to him, and he is responsible for you. You understand that? That's a parent. That's a parent. The child's responsible to you, and you're responsible for that child. The rest of the line reads, in heaven. Again, that doesn't seem really important, part of this salutation. But I want to argue it's really, really, really important. And we forget it sometimes. Isn't it true that in every age, we try to bring God down to us and try to elevate ourselves up to him? I think part of it's very reasonable. Part of us wants to be able to grasp God somehow. We want to understand him. You know, God's not something we really can get our heads wrapped around, at least fully. So we try to put him in this box to help us understand him better the way we would understand him. And that's, and that's, That's okay. But there's another way we bring God down to us that's not so good. Sometimes we bring God down to us because we think he's unreasonable. We don't like what he said. We think he's wrong. So we bring him down to a level that's even with us. And if he's even with us, then we don't have to listen to him because we can discount what he says because we're just all even. So Jesus says, I want you to pray our Father in heaven. And why he wants to do that is, He understands the folly of men. He tells us that Jesus didn't seek the approval of men. 
when he taught us to pray, he squarely says, I admit that God's in heaven, in the holy place, on the throne. I'm on earth. I'm a sinful man. I'm not in heaven. He's in heaven. And there's a separation there. And I need to understand that he's holy and I'm not. I'm not equal to God. So when I'm praying, I'm admitting to further establish, establish this relationship, this hierarchical relationship. He's the father. I'm the son. I don't run the store. Have you ever had your kids get to that age where they start to tell you how you should run your house? Rebecca, are you here? She had a great story about that this morning. We all did it as kids, right? We got to be like that 13, 14-year-old age. And we thought that we were going to tell our folks how to do things. What did our parents say? My house, my rules. You all remember that? Have you ever said that as a parent? My house, my rules. God's house, God's rules. He's the Father who art in heaven, in a holy place on the throne, and we are his children. Sometimes we act like little teenagers. But Jesus is telling us, when you pray this prayer, Submit yourself to what it is I'm trying to tell you. He's in heaven, you're not. Taken together, our Father in heaven really means we acknowledge God as our Father and the authority to whom we submit as he sits on his heavenly throne in a place which we cannot even conceive of. He is God and we are not. We are his creation and the children who trust him implicitly. You trust your parents implicitly. You know they're going to do good for you. Now think, think for a moment just how important that concept is. You're, you're going before the throne of God when you're going to pray to him. You're going to go before the creator of the universe in prayer. Is your heart right? Do you understand who you're talking to? Is he your buddy? Or is this a holy God? A father who loves you, who created you, who breathed life into you. Jesus had something in mind here. And Jesus models that prayer when he went to God, right? I don't do anything my father doesn't tell me to say. He models this for us. So we're to pray in reverence, fully willing to humble ourselves and submit to the father. When you come before the throne like this, like a child to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs, according to Jesus, Chances are good that you'll be more willing to listen to him. You ever pray <laughs> and then not listen to God? We start out, dear God, please help Aunt Sally and da 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 da. And we don't listen for a thing because we come to the throne as if, as if our Father who art in heaven is some kind of salutation. Dear God, it's much, much more. Jesus is telling us, prepare your hearts before you walk into the throne room. Understand what's going on here. Hallowed be thy name. Jesus follows up this, pre this preparation by continuing to remind us that the name of God is sanctified and holy. The literal translation from the Greek reads this way. Let be sanctified your name. I found a great commentary by a fellow named Eliot that expressed it this way. Hallowed be thy name. The first expression of thought in this pattern prayer is not an utterance of our wants and wishes. But it's the name of God, that which sums up all of our thoughts of God, that should be hallowed. 
all men should see that name as consecrated. Not lightly used, not lightly used in trivial speech or rash assertion or bitterness of debate, but the object of awe and love and adoration. When I was preparing this, I almost stopped there because <laughs> I was so convicted. I thought, man, I could chew on that for like two weeks and just go, am I in my prayer life coming before the throne like that? And the sad answer was no. The sad answer is I did what Elliot said we shouldn't do, which is go before God and start asking for stuff. Not being thankful, not seeing adoration or love or understanding this holy God and really understanding my relationship with him as deeply as God would have me do it. I was one of these dear God kind of guys. And this is very, very convicting to me. Together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, is a de declaration wherein we announce that we know who this God is and we are prepared to ask him for blessings because we love and adore him, respecting his authority. In short, we are saying that we have wisdom because we have the fear of the Lord, like Brett was teaching on last week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the first century, you may recall that the kingdom coming was associated with the messianic prophecies found in Isaiah, uh, chapters 11, chapter 42, as well as Daniel. Israel had been told that a king would come and deliver them from the oppression. So when Jesus says this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, this is the imagery that comes to mind, is this Old Testament prophecy. But Jesus, of course, he knew that he was the, the, the subject of those prophecies. He was the fulfillment of the prophecies. So he's telling us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And he's telling us to pray that way. I was reading a book by Tim Keller. I don't know if you know Tim Keller. Kind of a wonky, brilliant guy. He wrote a book on marriage. And he had a line in the second chapter that, that really caught my attention. He says, uh, we were, Jesus lived the life we were supposed to live. And he died the kind of death we were supposed to die. And that really struck me. Because I don't live the kind of life Jesus lived. And I certainly don't want to die the death he did. Yet Jesus showed us, while he was on earth, how God's kingdom could be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus kind of explains this to us later in the book of Matthew by three parables. You remember he says, the kingdom is like, Jesus said this a lot, the kingdom is like. So in chapter 13, this is what he says. The first story, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. A man finds a treasure, he's all excited, he reburies it, sells everything he owns, and goes and buys that field. I was always struck. I would have just taken the treasure. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is the kingdom of heaven is so valuable, it's worth everything. You should be willing to give up everything to get the kingdom of heaven. The second parable, uh, he talks about a boat that's fishing, and they throw their nets out, and they pull in this large catch a fish, but then they have to separate them. Apparently there's salmon and there's carp. There's, there's good fish and there's worthless fish. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a boat that catches all these fish and they separate the good ones from the worthless ones. And he doesn't explain it. 
And I'm sure his disciples were shaking their heads, all being fishermen going in. What is your point? Um, the point is, the kingdom of heaven is for those that follow. And there are going to be those that don't follow. And they're not going to be seen as worthy. And that's a hard thing. And we should be concerned about that. When I tell you that there are people that are not going into the kingdom of heaven, your heart should sink. There's this fellow, I think he did world vision. He said, let my heart break for the things that break your heart, O Lord. It should break your heart that there's going to be people that don't follow. And the parable is about us going out and fixing that. We've got to tell people about Jesus. The third parable is... The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who brings out of his storeroom what is new and what is old. I read that and went, i got to look that one up because I I, I'm missing the point. And uh, what Jesus is talking about is what is new and what is old. What is old is the law. What is new is the new covenant. It's like a, he's like, the kingdom of heaven is like how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Together, God is saying the kingdom is valuable, but not only those, but only those who obey will see it and understand, understand that you need to connect the Old Testament pointing to Jesus and the New Testament being the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pointed to. Why does that matter as the kingdom be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you don't understand what the kingdom's like, you'll never do the work. If you don't value the kingdom, if it's not like that treasure in that field and you're not willing to sell yourself out for it, you'll never do the work Jesus wants you to do. The kingdom of heaven cannot be on earth unless you do your part. Jesus talks more about this in Matthew 7. This is a, this is a, tough, this is a tough verse. 13 through 23, he says, this is where he says the gate is narrow. You get to the Father only through the Son. And many will think that they're following. Many will think that they are doing exactly what Scripture says, but they're actually following false prophets and false ideas. They're bearing bad fruit. And when that day comes, the Lord will say, I never knew you. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And he'll say, get away from me, evildoer. I don't know you. I didn't have a relationship with you. You weren't following my commands. You weren't doing what I said. You weren't bringing the kingdom of heaven to, the king, to earth. You weren't in relationship with me. I don't know you. That's the scariest words in Scripture, as far as I'm concerned. Because there are people out there right now, there may be people in this sanctuary right now, who truly believe in their hearts they're following Jesus, when in fact, Jesus doesn't have a relationship with you because you're not following his commands. I, I find that very scary. See, we talk in church about being Christ-like, but there's so much more to being Christ-like than having good fellowship and being nice to one another. <laughs> I love this church. When Lisa and I first came here, um, this was the nicest group of people I'd ever met. <laughs> the hugging was a little much, but um, the, the, it was just so warm and welcoming. It's a fellowship church. You accept everybody. And you do so out of the love of Christ. 
But when we learn that the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be here on earth, we know there's more to it than that. Jesus tells us if we love him, we'll do what he says. He commands us at the end, go out and make disciples, teaching them everything I have commanded you. See, this is the second part that everyone forgets to say. Everyone says, go out and make disciples. Go out among the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Make disciples. And then they stop. That's not the end of the verse. The verse continues and says, teaching them everything I have commanded. So I can tell you about Jesus, but if I don't tell you what he wants you to do, I've not really fulfilled the commandment. So if you put all this together, in order for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, we must do as Christ did. We must walk the walk he walked 2,000 years ago. We must do what Christ commanded. We have to pick up our cross daily and carry it. In his prayer about the disciples, do you remember what Jesus said to the Father? Father, leave them here. I bet Peter was not happy about that. Leave them here. They can't come where I'm going. They have work to do. We are on earth because it's our job to create the kingdom of heaven on earth. Jesus was asked, where, where, when is the kingdom of heaven? He says, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. I'm in front of you. You might be the only Bible people ever see. Ever. You are the kingdom of heaven. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have the power to bring the kingdom of heaven everywhere you step. Why do you think Jesus said, you are the light of the world? That didn't mean be the life of the party. I misunderstood that for years. <laughs> so when you pray, you're agreeing that you're going to do your job. You're telling God that you will use your gifts and experience and your abilities and your time and your treasure and everything you are to show the world the kingdom of God just as Jesus did 2,000 years ago. i, I got to get off script for a second. This hit me when I was writing this. So I'm typing this out. I think I'm doing real well, right? And it strikes me. How many people were following Jesus when he went to the cross? 1,000? 1,500? Roughly 12 and some women. You know, sometimes I feel like a real failure in my life because my ministry is not this grandiose thing and I'm not doing you know I don't think I'm making a difference and I'm not I'm not working hard enough and I'm not pouring myself into enough people and I'm not and then I remember this just hit me in his time Jesus would not have been seen as this great CEO running this giant company he roughly had 12 disciples and a bunch of women following him around and when the shepherd was hit the flock scattered remember who was at the crucifixion John was there Mary's were there. None of the followers. The 72 disciples had already left because the training was too hard. So he tells us, you are the kingdom of heaven. You are supposed to fill out, complete the mission. Wow. That just stuns me. 
That's a lot of responsibility. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to evangelize. It's not a dirty word. You're to worship and love and share and care and disciple and feed and clothe and house and proclaim Jesus every single day. Because like that field, the kingdom of heaven is the most important thing in your life. Like the fishes, you don't want any to be thought worthless. And like the old and the new, you completely understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament are about the same thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And honestly, you shouldn't be surprised when people push back against you. Didn't Jesus tell us they're going to hate you because they hated me first? How many of you hate to evangelize because you're afraid of rejection? You don't want to push religion on people. In our culture, we were taught that there's three things you never talk about. Politics, religion, and money. So we bought into this line that Satan's given us that we shouldn't talk about religion to people because it's impolite. Yep, it's impolite to tell someone about Jesus Christ because we might save them from going to hell. So I'd rather not be impolite. What a lie. Don't be deterred from loving people. They will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Love them enough to bring them with us to eternity. So you can't simply pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and God, that's your responsibility. This isn't, oh, Lord, what we're really thinking here is the, the fulfillment of Revelation chapters 21, 22. That book wasn't even written yet. He wants you to do the work to bring the kingdom to earth. So as you can tell, as we're doing this, this is becoming a dangerous prayer. This isn't something that we just repeat because it's the first prayer we learned. There's, there's just meat in this thing. And it's scary meat. It's like, it's like meat that's been sitting out for a while. It's like, I don't know if I want to touch that. That's, this is difficult. God actually wants me to do something. Give us today our daily bread. The first thing that comes to mind, obviously, is the Exodus, right? Where, where the, the Israelites are taking a stroll through the desert for about 40 years. And God's going to feed them. He gives them manna, bread from heaven. He feeds them every day until they hit the promised land. And then the manna stops. That's the first thing everyone thinks about with this. Um, and rightly so. Give us today our daily bread. I think, I think that's great. But I'm going to take a different tact with this from Scripture. You know, we want our weekly bread. We want our monthly bread. We want our yearly bread. Wouldn't that be more comfortable? God, give us our decade's worth of bread so we don't have to worry about you or rely on you. Wouldn't that be fabulous? But Solomon teaches us in Proverbs 38 and 9, Keep falsehoods and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty or riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you. And say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and then dishonor your name. So Solomon's telling us, there's a reason for just getting what you need. Because you'll honor God better. But let me spin this a little bit on you and see if you can buy what I'm about to tell you. I think Jesus meant two things by daily bread. I think he meant daily bread. 
the literal translation. But I also think he meant something extremely, extremely more important. In John 6, 25 through 29, Jesus says this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? This is after he's fed the, the thousands with the loaves and fishes. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of, which the son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? To, what, is, what does God require for this work? And Jesus answers, the work of God is this, to believe in him who he sent. So they asked him, what sign then shall we see so that we may believe? What will you do? Our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You see what they're doing there? Okay, Jesus, God gave them manna. What are you giving us? Jesus says them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they're a little confused. Sir, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. You see what he did? He kind of set him up. He is the daily bread you should ask for. You cannot possibly do on earth as it is in heaven unless you get your daily nourishment of Jesus. This isn't the only place Jesus says this, is it? Remember when he was tempted in the desert? Remember the first temptation? Satan says, okay, Jesus, you've been fasting for 40 days. Here's some rocks. Turn them into bread and eat them. Jesus responds, Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. First imagery of spiritual nourishment. He didn't need bread. He needed, them. He needed every word of God. Spiritual nourishment. Another place he says, uh, John, John asked him, would you like some food? And Jesus replies that he has meat to eat that you don't know of. <laughs> I'm sure they're like, what? He's implying he had spiritual nourishment. He didn't need food. Spiritual nourishment was more important. In fact, he tells the disciples, don't worry about tomorrow and what you're going to eat and drink like everyone else does. Instead, seek the kingdom of God. Again, spiritual nourishment. And you know the most powerful image, right? He takes the loaves and he breaks it. And he tells the disciples, this is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. Give us this day our daily bread. Sure, it can, it, can be a, it can be a Big Mac. But when I read this, I was convicted. This day our daily bread is Jesus. He is the bread of life. He, he is what I need in my life every day. In fact, we're told to fast. Some of you can fast. Some of you do that. So some days you don't get your daily bread because you... Some of you are on that crazy, like, no-carbs diet and don't eat bread. Some of you are gluten-free, no bread for you. Every day we can have Jesus because he is our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This line is pretty straightforward, but I found that 
One of the words, the word used for debt is actually duty. Duty. So when we don't do our duty toward God, we don't do our responsibility toward God, then we are sinning by commission or omission, right? That's pretty straightforward. But there's a little twist to this that I want to share with you. Jesus instructs us that we have to forgive others before asking forgiveness from God. He tells us before, too, in, in that chapter, uh, forgive as you've been forgiven. So what, what we do is we, we, we've, we've got to go and forgive people and then go to God and say, forgive me. Leave your gift at the altar if your brother has something against you and go and be reconciled before you come to God. Show of hands, how many of you ever prayed this prayer before being reconciled to your brother or sister? That's not the command. The command is God takes reconciliation and unity and love so seriously. He says, don't even come to me before you've reconciled. And there's a parable Jesus tells. <laughs> it's a great parable. Remember the story about the servant who owes a bunch of money to the master and the master is going to collect? And the servant begs, oh, master, master, please don't, don't throw me in jail. I, I swear I'll get the money. I, and, and, the, and the master's so moved, he says, tell you what, I'm going to erase the debt. One happy servant. Servant leaves. What does he go do? He go finds a guy that owes him money, a small amount, and he beats him and has him thrown in jail. Another servant tells the master what this guy has just done. And the master's outraged. He has shown mercy and the other fellow didn't. So what did the master do? Do you remember? Reinstated the debt, threw him in jail where there was gnashing of teeth. I always wonder what gnashing of teeth meant. And the story Jesus is trying to say is if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. You have to make the first move. Anybody out there have some forgiveness issues? Are there, are there people who have had, had debts to you? You've not forgiven them, yet you're praying this prayer? I just want to encourage you. It's okay. Pray to God. Give me the strength to forgive my debtors. Because forgiveness is one of the hardest things, isn't it? Seems like we're letting people off the hook. But this prayer tells us very clearly. Forgive your debtors first, and then come to your Father, and he will be so excited to forgive you. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, this line is confusing people. How many of you actually think God leads you into temptation? See, James tells us in his first chapter of his book, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. There's a conflict there. Our prayer tells us to ask God not to tempt us. And James says God doesn't tempt us. So how do we, get, how do we fix this? How do we get there? The word for temptation in the Greek uh, has a number of different meanings. And I, I think everyone gravitated to the first one because it was the first one which was temptation. But there's other meanings. Other meanings include... Uh, the word is perazo, by the way, means test or putting to proof. So I think a stronger translation might be, lead us not into testing or proving or trials, but deliver us from evil. This changes the meaning somewhat from God leading us into temptation, what James says he doesn't do, 
to God allowing testing or proving or trials in our lives, which we know from Scripture is true. Any of you ever had a test or a trial or some kind of proving thing with God? No? Just me, huh? Okay. I'm good with that. Jesus says in Scripture, in this life you will have trouble. I always thought that was the greatest understatement of the Bible. We do indeed reap what we sow, right? But more than that, we reap what other people sow. We can be victims. We could just be minding our own business and someone else uses their free will and that affects us. And to make it even more difficult, we reap what happens in the spiritual war that we don't see. We can reap there too. But God gives us clear instructions. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he says, there's always a way out of sin. His expectation is that we choose the way out of sin rather than follow our sinful desires. God tells us that when someone uses their free will inappropriately and it affects us, we're to pray for our enemies. We're to love them. Pray for those who persecute us. We're supposed to turn the other cheek, forgive as you've been forgiven. You know all, you all know those things. Even when you're the victim, God gives us a way to deal with that. And lastly, God tells us that if we rebuke the devil, he will flee. Put on the armor of God. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation. Here's what I think we're really asking for. We're asking for, actually exempt us from the trial. <laughs> Don't do this to us, if you, you know, sure will. Two, give us a way to escape the trial. Give us a back door, let us out. Or three, give us the strength to endure the trial. You know the most powerful example. Jesus is sitting in the garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating blood. He's about to go to the cross. And he says, Father, take this cup from me. You can imagine the agony. Then he follows up and says, but not my will, but thine. Not my will, but thine. Ever read the book of Job? Job, love that book. Job is a great example of, of how this all plays out in our lives. See, the verse says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, deliver us from Satan. The verse says Satan's the one doing this to you, either directly or indirectly. So in do you ever notice in the book of Job that God's not the, or Satan's not the one that fingered Job, it was God? In the beginning of the book, it opens where Satan is kind of around, and he's around the throne, and the angel's around the throne, and God says, what are you doing here? Where have you been? He says, well, you know, I've been going from here to there, messing around. And God says, hmm, between the earth and the heaven, does it bother you that Satan's in front of the throne? People miss that part. See, Satan's in front of the throne night and day accusing you. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on all the earth. God threw Job under the bus. Satan wasn't looking to do anything to Job. And then Satan says, well, God, the only reason that Job is good to you is because you give him all that stuff. If you took it away from him. And God says, you do what you got to do, but you can't kill him. So the story continues, and Satan has a house fall on Job's kids, and all of Job's livestock are stolen from him. His wealth goes away, his pride goes away, his legacy goes away. 
When Job is told his kids died, what, do you remember the first thing he did? Hit his knees. Praise the Lord. Amazing. So Satan comes back up and says, God says, see, none as righteous as Job. And Satan says, ah, come on, flesh for flesh. Certainly we can take away his stuff, nobody cares about that. But if you harm him, he will certainly curse you. And God says, you can do it, but again, you can't kill him. And this is where Job goes through this very painful experience. What is all that about? What did poor Job do? And this is that spiritual warfare thing I was telling you about. Consider it this way. God looks at Jeff Flood. I'm just going to pick on you because you're wearing a tie. You and I, brother. He says, Jeff, you are my champion. And I'm going to put you in the ring against Satan. And your only requirement is to stay faithful. No matter what Satan does to you, no matter how badly he harms you, no matter what happens in your life, you are my champion. All the house money is on you because there is none like Jeff Flood on all the earth. He is a righteous man. Would you be proud to represent God like that? You may not like it, but you're representing God in the ring. And that's what Job did. God said, there's none like him. Satan, I dare you. He will not fall. I trust him so much. I love him so much. He's my guy. So why do we pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you want to be Job? <laughs> I pray, Lord, I want to serve you in any way I can, but if you can take this cup from me, that would be fabulous. Because I really don't want to get in the ring against Satan because he's faster, smarter, and stronger than me, and I don't want to lose stuff. Satan wants to kill me. He wants to wreck me. But like Jesus, I also say, thy will be done. How many of you have ever been in the ring with Satan? How many of you have been God's champions? Every one of you better raise your hand if you're a Christian. Every one of you has been God's champion at some point. Because as a Christian, that is what picking up our cross daily means. That we are willing to say to God, I will be your champion. And I will get in the ring. And no matter what happens to me, I will maintain the faith. Because that's the only requirement. And God is so proud of you. Would you trust you to do that? See how much trust God has in you? I'm not sure I'd trust me to do it. But God trusts you so much. So Jesus says, when you pray, understand this bigger thing that's going on around you. There's a spiritual war, friends. And you may be chosen to fight in it. This last part. For thy kingdom, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, and the power. Amen. This part was not in the prayer. You don't read that in scripture. A scribe added that later is kind of, he says, you know, that prayer didn't really end right. It's not good for us in church just to end with, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Need something. There's not enough pizzazz. So he ends it with this. But this is important too. Because again, what we're doing is consolidating these ideas that God is the power, not us. It is his kingdom, and we have a role to play in it. And this is a game where the stakes are eternity. This isn't about today. This is about eternity. Here's my challenge to you. You're going to pray this prayer. 
over the, the rest of your life. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Will you think about this? Will you try to approach the throne in this righteous and holy way that Jesus intended it? Will you take seriously the challenge that Jesus is giving us in this prayer? Because it's a lot more than just saying it over and over and over again, like I used to when I was in Catholic school and got in trouble, and they say, Tom, ten Our Fathers. Our Father. And believe me, I got in trouble enough to memorize it. This is a powerful, dangerous prayer. Just like Jesus. So I ask you, do you want to live a life repeating this prayer like we have been? Or do you want to live dangerously? And do what Jesus really meant when he said, pray to our Father. Amen? Amen. I believe what's going to happen next, even though I don't have a bulletin with me, is that the uh, praise team is going to come up and sing. Is that what's on the agenda next? That'd be fabulous. Ted and the gang, would you please come on up here and help us do some more worship?